You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers Initiative. And to help me in assembling the Avengers is John Mills. Indeed, I'm back. We're on the flip side of the coin now, aren't we? After exploring the Snyderverse, we're now exploring the uh, 800 billion pound gorilla in the room. That's uh, 100% correct. 100% correct. Well, when we were trying to think of, like, because we had so much fun doing that, we thought, what else could we do? And we thought, well, what would happen if we went back and looked at the Marvel Cinematic Universe without all the hype? You know, and so Mm -hmm. that's our goal is to kind of go through the MCU and look at all of the films and just a very critical light just to see how they actually hold up apart from the hype of them, you know, just coming out and everybody kind of being, you know, on a on any kind of wagon, whether it's for or against. We're here. uh, And so. Uh, before we get into everything, you know, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We just thank you for listening here on, on the 602 Club feed uh, to Assembling Avengers. We're really excited to dive into this process. Of course, make sure you're following us over on social media at the 602 Club, as well uh, as on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. Of course, we've got the listeners only discussion group called the Babel Conference. You can join and talk to listeners from all over the world. Trek.fm is also our website where you can see everything that we're doing there in the network. And if you want to send an email to John and I, you can do that through Trek.fm slash contact. Choose a show, choose the 602 Club, and uh, you can send us any comments that way as well. Um, John, I wanted to, before we kind of get into anything else, you know, this is the first show of Assembling Avengers, and we're going to be doing this in release order of the films. So as they came to us, not any kind of chronological order, because uh, this is how the MCU was built. So we're going to do it that way. But I'm wondering for you, uh, everybody I think who's listened to us before knows the fandoms that we love, like Star Wars and Bond and those kind of things, uh, knows that you're a huge Batman fan, I'm a huge Superman fan, but when it comes to Marvel properties, were you a fan of any of these characters before they had started the MCU, and were you, you know, then interested as they decide to bring out a movie called Iron Man? I, I, my brother was the comic book collector, and I was the snot-nosed young punk brother who would steal into his collection to read them. So, my brother was literally, he was a collector. He had the big long boxes, he had the, the cardboard backers, the plastic sleeves, he tried to keep everything in mint condition, uh, but, you know, my slimy little hands would, would get on them from time to time. So, yes, I was very familiar with Marvel. In terms of Marvel, I was much more an X-Men fan than anything else. Uh, I loved the What If series. I really loved Daredevil. Uh, I enjoyed Spider-Man. 
I wasn't a big Avengers guy. Captain America was there, but you know, okay, that's fine. Iron Man, okay, that that was fine too. Black Widow, I was kind of aware of. Um, but I really, because my brother is older, I also had a real taste for the 1970s stuff, like, uh, you know, Morbius Living Vampire and the introduction of Blade and uh, even um, uh, Master of Kung Fu and stuff like that. So I really love those older stuff. I still do because the, just the absolute unrestrained creativity that went into them. But that is a very long winded way to say, yes, when I was growing up, it was make mine Marvel. And I didn't really draw a distinction. It's just sort of in in retrospect, it was primarily Marvel comics. You know, Batman was there, and I, I did read Superman comics too. Um, but I was really, really big into the Marvel titles. So, yes. Was I excited for Iron Man? No, I wasn't. I just shrugged and I said, yeah, sure. Looks okay. Um, I actually did not see it in the theater. So fascinating. Uh, yeah. What about you? I yeah, mean, the, you that's know, really interesting. I know you're a big DC fan and, and stuff like that, but mm-hmm. uh, were you a Marvel fan as well? Or were, were they the, were they the other kids that you didn't like to play with? What's uh, most interesting is that uh, at the time I was just kind of dipping my toe into comics because this is 2008. So I'm starting to kind of find my way into comics themselves and they are DC comics that I'm dipping my toe into. And, but I'm aware of, you know, some Marvel characters like Spider-Man, you know, uh, or the Incredible Hulk or Captain America. Those are the ones that I really knew something about. So Iron Man for me was something that I, I hadn't really heard of, you know. Um, and so for me, the first time of experiencing Iron Man was the trailer, Mm. And who this character was and what he looked like and what he was going to be and everything. And so, you know, kind of coming into this, all I have to go on is the trailer that we get and seeing the movie uh, in the theater. So yeah, for me, you know, I I saw it for the first time in the theater and, you know, um, I... I remember, you know, going to it with friends at that point and and seeing it. And, you know, I'm I'm a huge fan of going to the movies in the first place. So it was enjoyable and I had a great time doing it. You know, it's been since 2008, so I don't remember the specific details, honestly, of of seeing it other than just, you know, it it was another great movie experience and had a lot of fun. And it introduced uh, me to um, a whole new character. And, you know, honestly, really, it kind of introduced me to a whole new universe. I'd seen the Raimi Spider-Man films. Sure. Um, so, but, um, you know, this was one of those uh, places where I am starting to see how big the Marvel universe is, you know, with this character. So, See, uh, just, just to put it in context, why wasn't I... I hyper excited about Iron Man. You got to keep in mind by this point I had a kid. And so that really puts a curb on how excited you get for other stuff. Like I'm I'm having yeah, the excitement true. of first words and first crawling and feeding cereal and all of that sort of stuff. Um and you made reference to the Spider-Man movies. Those ended with a whimper. Uh Blade, I love the first Blade when it came out. And then 
love the subsequent movies substantially less with each iteration. I, I've come around a little bit on Blade Two, but X, you know, I me- I mentioned X Men. From my perspective, Iron Man was just another exercise in a comic book movie sort of thing, where it's like it really. My perspective was well, I've kind of been there already. Like, there wasn't a reason for me to get excited about it because I was like, okay, yeah. I mean, they did X-Men. They did Blade. They did Spider-Man. Sure. Okay. They're doing Iron Man. So I didn't see anything of special significance with Iron Man being released. Yeah. And I I think, you know, probably most people, I I think, felt like that. I mean, I didn't see anything special about it in the sense that it was just another comic book movie was coming out like you, you know. I hadn't seen the Blade movies, but obviously, you know, like you said, Spider-Man 3 is just god-awful and, you know, uh, <laughs> X-Men 3 is terrible. Um, yes. So 3s tend to be bad. So we'll Blade, be Trinity. In, yeah. Blade Trinity was a nightmare. Uh, you know, so, um, but, you know, I had enjoyed Spider-Man 2. I, you know, I had loved yeah. uh, I, and really enjoyed X-Men and then X2 was fantastic, you know, so... You know, there are all these movies out there. And so, yeah, I'm really interested. Obviously, you you said didn't see this in the theater. So what was your first time seeing Iron Man? Was it just at home or? Mm -hmm. uh, okay? yeah, it was it was just at home on on my TV and uh, letterbox, of course. I mean, I have standards. Yeah, Uh, it's about standards. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So and that was it. I I still remember. I think I still remember the couch. I think I still have the couch that I watched it on. Um, yeah, the green, yeah, yeah, um, it's upstairs now, smaller living conditions back then. Uh, but yeah, um, sat on the couch, watched it beginning to finish. Somebody had told me to pay attention and watch the end of the credits. And I just, I, you know, back then I thought it was neat. I was like, I, I wasn't nuts for it. There were, I, I knew a lot of people that were crazy for it. They were like, oh, this is an amazing movie. I, I and my reaction was, that oh, was good. I like that. I had a good time watching it. Um, I thought it moved. I thought it, you know, went along. And I, I actually, I remember at the time loving the way that it ended. And I'm not talking about the, the stinger. I thought it was the perfect way to end it as a tee up for sequels. Right. Mm-hmm. Where it was like, it was all resolved. And then, but then it ended, you know, the precisely correct, abrupt sort of way where you go, oh, I want to see the next one. Right. Mm-hmm. That and so yeah. that got me excited for for the second one. Um or the promise yeah. of a second one. Yes. No, I mean I, I think in that sense, you know, our initial thoughts are very similar in this sense. I, I remember coming out of the theater and really having enjoyed the movie. I thought it was a lot of fun. You know, I think that's something that I noticed about the movie was just it 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 had a real sense of fun to it but that it also has a real sense of realism to it. Mm-hmm. Part of that comes from, I think, you know, you get the direction you get with John Favreau. He wanted everything very grounded. Um, and, you know, even just the beginning of the movie is pretty gritty and real feeling, you know, with the explosion that happens and what puts him in the cave in the first place. And, you know, all of that is, there's nothing really fantastical about this movie. You know, he does a very good job. And I think this is the thing I really gravitated towards with the the character of Iron Man then after seeing it. And the film itself is just that everything felt possible. You know, even though 
the guys in a crazy iron suit, you know, not really iron, but, you know, flying yeah. through the, the sky, the way it was created and the way the suit was created and everything there, it felt possible. And right. I think even just the way that they do the effects here are phenomenal because none of it feels fake. None of it feels CGI'd in a way that just throws you out of it. I, even rewatching it, I was just struck by how well the movie holds up in that sense because it doesn't look dated because so much of it still holds up technologically because it's actually really there on the screen. And then they're augmenting it, I'm sure, with the computer to make everything smooth and seamless. But it just feels like everything is happening in camera instead of it being like this juxtaposition of you've got what's happening in camera and then you can completely tell what they've created in the computer and the two never seem to meet uh, as it happens with a lot of comic book movies these days. And so I think that's something that I ended up really thinking, wow, this is this is a good movie and this is a great beginning. And like you said, Favreau does the exact right thing, which is to just end on that, I am Iron Man. And of course, you just want to see what the fallout of that is because you've never seen a, a hero do that, right? Like, right. You're 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 taking the genre into a dimension which we haven't seen really play out on screen where somebody just straight up says, no, I am the hero. Mm. I think that is what winds up being endearing about the choices that Favreau makes is that that feels very earned and it feels very natural to the character. This character would not have felt right. This interpretation of Tony Stark would not have felt right keeping that hidden it felt correct for him to do that in terms of the effects there are a couple of shots of iron man in the 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 suit you know when he's blowing up the tanks and stuff or where he'll turn to the camera you can you can pretty much tell that's that's a cg thing but that's okay like it's still it looks good it's a well-composed shot and i think favreau's strength uh, in terms of effects throughout his whole career, you can tell Favreau knows how to keep it to speak to your point. He doesn't get too ambitious with what he's trying to show. So he can get away with that fully CG look in a couple of shots because he does it in the right way. He, he doesn't make it center frame, super focused standout sort of thing. It's, you know, off to left frame, turning around, moving in a relatively sensible way, you know, so, so it, it, it holds up in that sense. But to speak to the main thing I think you got at here is what makes this movie work is the same thing that makes the 1978 Superman work so damn well. And that is the fact that the director and the star are earnest about it. They believe what's going on, even though what's going on is absolutely crazy, insane, impossible. They believe in it. If they believe in it, you believe in it. And they don't ask too much of you. And you can tell not just uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Favreau, but the whole cast. They're, they're having a good time with this. And I think that's another thing that you can tell a lot with Favreau's projects is that everybody is, is enjoying their work. This is not a set where people are like, oh, I don't want to go to work today. This is a set of people like, okay, you know, 
Let's do our thing. And then, you know, this was such a big rebound moment for Robert Downey Jr. He had been on the outs of the Hollywood circle, and it's hard to imagine, it's hard to remember a time where Robert Downey Jr.'s name was sort of like, yeah, his career's pretty much over. That guy can write a he can write his own check for the rest of his life now. And it all starts here. It's crazy. Yeah, I, it was something uh, I turned to my wife and uh, as we were watching the movie again, and I was just, from the moment the movie starts, Robert Downey Jr. is on. Mm-hmm. And he's on in a way that brings the character of Iron Man to life and the character of Tony Stark to life perfectly. Like you said, in in the same way that what so many people responded to with Superman 78, which is Christopher Reeve's portrayal of Clark Kent and Superman. And Robert Downey Jr. just is Tony Stark. Yeah. And that's the beauty of the casting is, you know, Favreau had thought about going with, a, a you know, an unknown. And then it was just... It, Downey and Stark were so similar of characters. They were people who had been through very rough times and make a turn in their life. And, you know, I mean, the whole story of Tony Stark in this movie is being somebody who's very naive to the way the world works. And when he is confronted with that, makes a change. And so... Uh, and that change has r- ripples and repercussions throughout the entire, you know, uh, rest of, of his world and the world in general. But I, I just, you know, it's one of those genius moments of casting where they take that risk to bring Downey in. Downey is game and completely kind of reinvents himself as an actor in the perfect role to bring him back to prominence. And he, at this point, like you said, it's like, He's not going to mess this up. You know, he's 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 going to do everything he can to make this work and part of that is just by being tapping into who he was and who he is now as a person and those two things really bring this character to life and it I think what makes the movie work is that it is a whole character arc for a character to go from one place to the next. So he is a different person by the end of the movie. But there are still parts of him that uh, are the things that you kind of gravitate towards the entire time, you know. And so it's just a great job, I I think, by both of them working together. And then, I mean, you called it out. The rest of the cast here is just having a phenomenal time, like you said, going to work. I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow's great. Terrence Howard's great. Jon Favreau himself, you know, putting himself in the movie was really fun. Um, You know, like everybody's having a good time being in this. I mean, even uh, Jeff Bridges is having a great time. He's just chewing up the scenery every time he's in it. So, you know, like I think that's, that's the hallmark of people really uh, enjoying the process of creating something for the audience. And then, you know, I, it shows in the fact that people responded to this movie in kind. Well, I think that, uh, you know, because you mentioned Favreau's in there and stuff like that. I think that probably what helps sell this movie and, and makes the audience bring so much goodwill to allow it to do what it does is the fact that in essence, it's approached like a comedy. 
everybody in this movie gets some giggles out of the audience. And even even Jeff Bridges, he gets a couple of giggles in there. Even if, even if it's just him being that mustache twirling supervillain type, you're like, hee hee, that's fun. And I think that that is something that is going to need to be addressed here because because we're talking about this as our origin point. We know what comes next. And I think I said this when we, I think we talked about the Incredible Hulk in the past or something. Um, mm-hmm. This is the A-B test. This is A, and Incredible Hulk is going to be B. And the audience responds to this formula better in a very large sense, in a very rep- reputation type of sense. People had more fun with this overall. Sure, sure. And so I think that what blurs a lot of memory and a lot of uh, assessment of this movie is the fact that this is the first moment where the template is made, where this is the one because of its success, where Marvel is able to say, this is what the people want. And they have very shortly after this, the B where they can say, this isn't quite what the people want right now. And then, of course, as we go through the series, we can we can debate until we're we're blue in the face as to whether it's a good thing that this one won out or not. And whether the template, you know, I mean, Denis Villeneuve just got in a lot of trouble for uh, <laughs> for pointing this out the true. template nature this of the MCU true. right now. So, well, and I'm going to be fascinated because, you know, as we will talk about next, you know, the Incredible Hulk, you know, I think. Aside from that. I do think that this movie works specifically and it becomes the template, not necessarily because it's like, oh, well, that doesn't work in Hulk. But I think what they're always trying to recapture in many Marvel films is what Downey brings to this movie. Oh, sure. You know, and that's something that doesn't then always work as well. I I think as we move forward... That'll be the thing that, in many ways, makes a movie fail for Marvel, and in, in, at least in my eyes, is because not everybody can be Robert Downey Jr. and has yeah. that charisma that just, I mean, it literally jumps off the screen from the first moment he's on to the last second that he is on screen. It just, that's, that's who he is. He is a Hollywood movie star. Yeah. And this one made him that again and showed you that there are those kind of stars that can just and I think that becomes the Marvel formula is we have to try and find the person who is going to enliven the screen in a way that you never want to take your eyes away from it and then allow you to go on an incredible, ridiculous, fantastical, insane journey and never question what you're watching because they're so charismatic, they make you buy into it. And mm-hmm. I, and to me, that is, I would say, um, it's it's on the outline for later as something to talk about. I just think it like that's the impact that this has on the franchise as it's setting the foundation, and and that becomes to me what I think of as like the Marvel template. Mm-hmm. Well, and I th- I think to just to further drive the point home, 
you know, that you're, you're speaking to, not everybody can be Robert Downey Jr. The problem becomes they start writing the characters as if Robert Downey Jr. is playing them Ooh, at times, not a hundred percent, not a hundred percent of the time. Okay. I don't want people suddenly thinking this is going to become like an MCU bashing exercise. It is not. Okay. Absolutely not. But when they, when they stumble, it's because they're mm-hmm. writing for the wrong actor. Sure. Sure. And the wrong character sometimes. But. Right. Well, and in many ways you know, that like it, it can become that thing where you want to fit something into the mold instead of allowing it to be what it is. So, yeah, I think I think and that's not a bad thing to say. Look, our whole point in doing this is to be constructively thoughtful about the way that we talk right. about the Marvel films and not just be fanboys one way or the other. So there there is actually something that I think in a lot of Marvel discussions that I've heard out there gets overlooked an awful lot. And I want to make a point to bring it up and I'm probably going to keep returning to this. The production design. What do you think of the production design? Do you think that this, it does this absolutely nail it? Is it too comic booky? Is it, is it not successful enough in terms of, uh, you know, blending the, the comic booky stuff you know, because there are a couple of points where I look at the production design and, I go, and like it starts off really strong. I'm like, that's really cool. And then sort of as it goes on, I'm like, you kind of went a little too comic book with this. And it, it mm. needed to be a little so, bit more reined in. So uh, give me an example of what you're thinking. Like, where is a the moment big suit for at the you? End. Okay. Yeah. Obadiah's big suit at the end is like, oh, well. Yeah, I get why they they went that way. I get why they had to do that, but it is a little too like that's the point at which it, it just asks just a tiny bit too much. But the production design overall, did you really did you like the look of the movie? Did you think that it worked? I respond to Iron Man very well when it comes to the production design. Uh, and I think because one of the things to which they do is they don't shy away from a, 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 I, w- I would call it a, a grit, especially in those first 20 minutes, you know, when you're in the cave and all mm-hmm. of those type of things, like everything feels very dark and grim and, and, and reality based. And they, they don't really jump that shark at all. And, and maybe, I mean, we could argue, I guess, about the end and, and whatever, but... For the most part, I think they they really try to give a very firm foundation to the reality of this world before we start to bring in fantastical characters like a Thor and those kind of things where it's more magical or uh, otherworldly powers and that kind of stuff. This just feels very grounded. And I really appreciate that about the Iron Man film. Um, And I think that for the most part, the production design works well in that, you know, got Tony's corporate offices, you know, he's got his really nice house in Malibu, you know, he's got a sweet, you know, cars that he's got. And, you know, it, uh, and I think one of the things, too, is that, you know, John Favreau just has a good way with the camera. Um, yeah. None of the action sequences feel, uh, you know, too jittery or too super cut, you know, um, even even when it is more CGI based, you know, I feel like we're having some longer cuts and everything when it comes to things. So we're not just 
constantly moving and, you know, this ADD type of uh, action sequences. Um, so for me, yeah. and, and I think the biggest thing too was the desire to have as much of the suit real as possible and in camera and to make it feel like a real thing. Like after this movie, even in the second Iron Man movie, you know, and we'll talk about it way more in depth when we get there, but everything is going to become a lot less realistic. But in this movie that you're, you're literally putting pieces on him and then screwing them together. And like, you're watching that happen and the suit feels real. Instead of just some construct that Robert Downey Jr. is, you know, in a video booth somewhere just filming his head, you know, you feel like this suit exists because you've seen it be put together on a body. And I think that production value speaks very loudly for why this movie still works all these years later, because you're not sitting there questioning the legitimacy of this existing because you've actually felt like you've seen it actually exist. Does that make any sense? It it does. And it, what, what I would tack on to that is it, where it gets away with having that correct comic book sensibility is comic books, you know, comic books you always knew weren't the real world, even when they said they were in the real world. Spider-Man's in New York. Yeah. No, I know this isn't real, but okay. Uh, I mean, everybody was in New York just because I guess that's just where everybody lived that was making the comics, and it was just easy for them to figure out <laughs> how that operated. But it, Plus, I mean, Spider-Man's powers really only work in a city like New York. So That's true. Spider-Man would be completely screwed in the Great Plains. Absolutely or useless. even in Orlando, where you live. It would be terrible. Don't tell people where I live. That's not fair. <laughs> I don't want Tony Stark sending a drone out here for me. I mean, hey, it would be Iger. kind of useless where I live in Vancouver, Washington. So There you go. There you go. <laughs> you heard it. Send the drones there. No, I I think that where the why the production design is successful, uh, even though I might have a quibble with the, the way that that final suit is there for the villain, is because it it tweaks it just enough to be a feel like an alternate reality. I can believe that this reality exists, but it knows it needs to tweak it just a little bit to remind me this is hyper reality because once somebody like Tony Stark enters the picture and has these inventions like this, it follows that things are going to look and work a little bit differently. And right here, they work and feel a little bit different as relates to him. And so the right. more advanced aspects of the design reflect him. It, it surrounds him. I remember an article in time, and I want to get your take on this. I think around the same time, uh, speed racer was coming out. That speed racer adaptation from the Wachowskis mm -hmm. was coming out. Yeah. And time had an article where they talked about how Iron Man and speed racer were a reflection of how we were becoming much more comfortable with the idea of being in a post-human cybernetic world. And because technology was no longer a thing being used by the heroes, and as evidenced by Iron Man, technology was now a part of us and a part of the hero. And I wanted to ask you, 
do you get that takeaway from the movie? Do you feel that same way? Or do you feel that these are still tools that Tony is using and they're not necessarily part and parcel of who he is? I think that that will be the case later on for the character specifically and the entire MCU in and of itself because almost every single character is defined by the suit that they wear technologically. I mean, that because that's what Marvel is as opposed to DC where you have more of these like godlike characters. Yeah. You know, Marvel is much more human beings in some sort of technological suit that allows them to do amazing things that they've been able to figure out technologically. And I don't think we're quite there yet because it does still, to me, feel very much like these are tools to which Tony uses and to which he is very good at using. He just has been kind of so bored in his life because he's just found nothing to believe in and he's just kind of a playboy. Um that he never really thinks about them in any other way other than being able to get him from one casino to the next, you know, whereas mm -hmm. when he has the realization of what his technology that his company has helped create is actually doing in the world, his goal then is to create technology to which will actually make the world a better place and not a worse place. And so that's where I think that blending starts to begin where it becomes a much more personal technology, especially with the fact that it is a suit that he wears. He's taken the responsibility in and of himself. And of course, you know, the the way in which his technology is intimately involved with him in the fact that Jarvis speaks to him, um, you know, so intimately. So I, I think that it's not quite there yet in this movie, but it is the beginning of that specifically for the Marvel Universe. And just even maybe the way that we kind of think about technology is beginning to change that way as well. You know, I mean, by 2008, you know, we don't all have iPhones l the way we do now that live in our pocket, you know, but we're getting there very quickly. Um, yeah. And so even our response to technology has changed. So I think that is an interesting question, but it is something to which will continue to play out in the Marvel Universe, you know, as we move forward. Well, I think that is... I don't want to get I don't want us to get ahead of ourselves but that I think actually is a theme that is touched on once maybe twice more in the Marvel series is the the conscious reckoning with the role of technology and how it how it's coming to define us uh, and I think What's interesting is because this, and again, this is getting to how this is setting the template and everything, because this more fun approach becomes the template, this is the victor, I think that there's some sort of parallel universe where somebody with a more Zack Snyder sense of things, that becomes much more of a, you know, like Zack Snyder's Iron Man wrestles a lot more with the idea of the balance between humanity and technology as opposed to Tony needs to embrace it and we're trying to put together a very entertaining movie here so that's what happens and we're not going to have him slow down too much to consider that sort of question mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So there, I think, I think what we're establishing here, and I want to be very careful in how I phrase this because I do not want anybody to think that I'm being dismissive of Favreau in the least. I think he's one of the most important filmmakers that we've had in the last 30 years, uh, quietly important. I think that there's a conscious decision here just to have fun. And I think that is the big debate. And I think that's probably why when other filmmakers like Scorsese say, uh, it's just a theme park ride. It's because they look at a topic like Iron Man and this whole thing of, you know, humanity and technology. And they want to see that Stanley Kubrick, Hal versus Dave argument going on. Mm -hmm. Jarvis isn't Dave's in, you know, in the, in the Stanley Kubrick view, Jarvis and Tony are having arguments and Jarvis is taking over the armor because they don't agree with, you know, like th that sort of thing. Whereas that's never going to happen here. They're mm -hmm. always going to be friends and they're always going to work together. Well, and, and I think the one thing that Iron Man is not afraid to do is to be topical at that point. Um, and, and I mean, it's still very topical now, honestly, even watching it, um, you know, just a few days ago which is the place of intervention in the world, especially mm. for the U.S. Mm -hmm. And when, you know, so I think that's one of the places where Favreau was not afraid to, to do something thematic and, and topical um, that it has relevance, you know, that has a deeper uh, resonance to it where it isn't just about fun. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons that I initially respond to Iron Man and maybe why I still respond to it now is that, it is asking bigger questions while at the same time having a good time. But, you know, Tony, and I think this is the beauty of the movie itself, is that it is willing to put our character through the ringer and have him have to wrestle with issues and come out the other side differently and not just kind of be a goofball the whole time. And, and I, I really appreciate that ab about the character and the movie and the fact that we have a character who makes a determination about his place in the world and the place in which he can have an impact, the, the way in which the things that he has or hasn't done in his life have made an impact and then work to make a change um, imperfectly. You know, that's part mm -hmm. of Marvel is that they're very imperfect characters working to make a difference and and that i think that's one of the things that makes people gravitate towards you know the the series and just marvel comics in general is they they really like those very imperfect characters working imperfectly to make a difference and so um yeah i well, think well i mean that that's always been you know going back to the comics that's always been the yes that, that's always been the hallmark i mean you know even going to my beloved x-men you know scott summers he wants to be everybody's friend, but he has to be a leader. So he has to sacrifice being buddies while everybody else can, can hang out and have fun. Uh, mm -hmm. Wolverine has a anger management issues, but he's a good person. So how, mm -hmm. how much allowance do you make for somebody who's antisocial right. in, right. in a larger group and stuff like that? Mm -hmm. And Tony Stark had his, you know, demon in a bottle issue right. and uh, which everybody references, but also Iron Man, was I think the first comic, and this was done as like an experiment where all of the artwork in one issue was done through 3D modeling. And it was way ahead of its time. 
uh, and looked weird, really weird. But all that to say, yeah, I mean, it's it's these imperfect characters that they go with. But speaking of imperfection, because I feel a lot of times in movie discussions, this specific topic gets overlooked. And to quote one of my uh, cinema heroes, sound is half the experience. And a big part of the sound is the score. How do you feel about the Iron Man score? Do you feel that this is a very successful score? Is this something you listen to when you're not watching the film? Or is this something where you there are moments where you hear it and you go, uh, that could have been better? Mm-hmm. It's it's really interesting you ask that question because I've been I was listening to it today. And I think what's really interesting is that most people, when you would ask them about Iron Man music, they would just immediately go to ACDC because that's what comes to mind more so than the score, because that's what kind of defines this character, especially in the second movie where the entire soundtrack was ACDC music um, that came out really popularly. Uh, I think the one disappointment for me in Iron Man is the fact that the score is not a standout. And that it was actually a problem in earlier Marvel movies that had been done. Uh, the X-Men movies don't have outstanding scores to them, really, that no, I can remember. No, I, or, I don't you know. care for the X-Men scores at yeah. all. At all. And so, uh, and uh, I think... I'm trying to remember if like the Spider-Man movies with Raimi really did, and, and I think maybe they're slightly more memorable, but... Marvel never did the thing that DC did. And I would say that they really still haven't done is give you, well, maybe once we get to Captain America, that might be a little bit different. And and even Avengers where there is a theme that's detectable. Right. But in Iron Man, there really isn't a detectable theme for the character of Iron Man that comes across as something that I can hum to myself and right. that I immediately bring to mind. So I do think that when it comes to even originally, I've never thought of pretty much any of the scores for the most part for the Marvel films. And it's even starting out with here with Iron Man. I don't think of the score. I immediately think of ACDC, you know, um, as being the theme of who Iron Man is which fits with the character, but the sense I still would love to have a thematic score uh, that I could think to myself, that's the Iron Man theme, and it just never happens. I really like, uh, and I know I'm jumping ahead here, but we'll, we'll get to this, uh, the end credits music for Iron Man 3, uh, Can You yep. Dig It by Brian Tyler. Yep. That's, that it's is great. stone cold classic yep. right there. Yep. Tyler and, Wow. But yeah, here it's not memorable. Like it's not bad. I'm not going to rag on on the music oh, here. No, it, no, it serves yeah. its purpose, but it's not memorable. Like I no. even right now, I, I can't really recall it. Nope. Now that's the thing is that might have been the direction. We don't want to call too much attention to it. Okay, that's successful then. You just wanted to make it functional, and you know what? That's fine. That works. And I like I don't hate the music. There's not any point where I'm like, this sucks. In in fact, there's plenty of moments where I'm like, okay, this is good. The the final ba- the 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 music that that plays over certain segments, I'm like, okay, this works. This works. But 
it works, but it's not. And this is this is what's difficult is it's not a Zimmer, it's not a Williams, mm-hmm. it's not right. Uh, you it, know, it's functional, not transcendent. Power. Right. Yeah, and that's fine. That's okay. Right. Like I would. I, it, it sounds like an insult, but it isn't. It's just. Mm-hmm. That's just what it is. Yeah. Um, I do, but I will say that uh, the use of Iron Man by Black Sabbath was a necessity. That would have been such a disappointment if they hadn't used at least a part of that song. Mm-hmm. Because anybody who's an older or and or metal fan like myself was like, you, you got to use this in the movie. Like if they had not, mm-hmm. the movie would have been like a zero star failure to me. I'm like, because it's such an obvious joke. But. Yeah, you got to do it. Right. Oh, you got to do it. So I do have to ask you a question because, and I think this is going to be an interesting one, you know, as we move through the MCU and kind of looking at it with this eye, just away from, you know, any kind of hype or anything, just looking at the movies as they hold up. Has anything changed for you over the years if you've rewatched this movie and and as you just rewatched it, you know, for us to talk about? Not really. Uh, I have fun with it. I think it holds up. I think that it's a good movie. Like this is the type of movie that's in. And I think that this is the highest possible compliment you can pay. Something that's trying to be entertaining is that it's still entertaining after all of these years. I'm happy with watching it. This is not anything that I feel like is a chore to get through. This is not anything that I think is 2001, a space odyssey or last of the Mohicans, but it's, it's good. It's just, you know, it's because um, I always like to liken stuff to food, uh, because if I likened it to beer, everybody would think I was an alcoholic. I am, but I don't acknowledge it. But like with food, when you go there, this is the equivalent of you go someplace and it's not like a steakhouse, but this is that really good hamburger and the fries were a little bit better than you expected. And and at the end, you're very satisfied. And you're like, that's, that's a damn good burger. And when you go back, you find out there's consistency. And the burger, mm-hmm. the burger's mm-hmm. still good. This is a good yeah. recipe. I like it. What about what about you? Was there any significant shift between then and now? Uh, you know, I, I don't think so. Um, and, and I think that's one of the highest compliments that I could pay this movie is that the the feeling that I had watching it the first time is still the feeling I have watching it now, which is this is such a good movie. You know, like there's nothing about it that I stop and I'm like, oh man, this part. Yeah. Like, you know, like that doesn't happen in this movie. Um, I, I, I've never been a person. I, I don't have a problem with the end. I, I think, uh, you know, I don't, I never had a problem with, um, you know, the big, oh, but, oh, Obadiah Stane's suit or anything like none of the nothing about this movie really bothers me um, to the point where I I detach from the film, you know? Yeah. And and I think that's a, a real hallmark of a of a great movie. And like you said, it's a movie that I, I just enjoy. It's the kind of thing I could put on any time. Right. You know, and, and just enjoy it. And part of that. And I do have to bring it back to this. I think it just comes down to how likable Robert Downey Jr. is throughout the entire film. He never grates on your nerves. He never yeah. takes it too far. It's a pitch perfect performance from him and everybody around him. It's the same thing. 
you know, I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow bouncing off of him, uh, you know, Terrence Howard bouncing off of him, uh, you know, everybody is just firing on all cylinders together. And, and that's the kind of movie that you just have such a wonderful time experiencing over and over again. I'm glad you mentioned Paltrow because Paltrow is not my favorite actress of all time. But here, the chemistry that she has with Robert Downey Jr. is old school movies. This yes. is this is the the Tracy Hepburn sort of dynamic where it's like, wow, these two are perfect together. This is this is exactly right. And even Favreau in the mix, all mm-hmm. three of them are just wonderful together. And I think that triumvirate is so important. And I'm glad you mentioned Tar- Terrence Howard as well, because I think Terrence Howard is good in this. And it's always, again, there, there's an alternate universe where there's a Zack Snyder's Iron Man. There's an alternate universe where Terrence Howard continues through the series and doesn't get replaced. And I... Mm-hmm. I I can't help but wonder what that looks like. Sure. And I I th- I, I think it's a regret going mm-hmm. forward. And that's the thing is Don Cheadle is a fantastic actor, but I, I really would have liked to see Terrence Howard keep going forward with it. I would have liked to see how that worked. Yeah. No, 100%. I think it's interesting because, you know, Don Cheadle was a- – thought of for the role you know and then of yeah. course he, he ends up in it um and i you know it's um i wonder if i wonder if terrence howard has any regrets for for what he pulls on iron man 2 and what he tries to to get them to pay him it, it's just it's one of those yeah. places where they're just you know um no we're not gonna do that and um so but yeah, I I think the beauty of of this movie is that that had nothing has changed for me when I watch it. Uh, there there's nothing that I think, wow, oh, I wish they had done this differently, or I don't enjoy this movie as much every time I watch it. It has been consistent, like you said. There are definitely places, man, where I have my, one of my favorite burgers, and I can go there every time and get that burger. And it's and we're not talking like a McDonald's thing. We're talking about one of those nice gourmet burgers, and you're just you're savoring it the whole time. And that's how I feel with this movie. And and so I guess you know it brings me to if you rate this movie now, mm. what do you rate Iron Man? That's a tough call because as we sit here and we have the discussion. I mean, I can't give it a five out of five because this isn't this isn't amazing cinema where it's like, but but at the same time, I sit there and I say that, and it really is. There's a huge step forward technologically in terms of what they can pull off, what they can show. Uh, this is before a big formula is put in place, and so it's very obvious the work of a filmmaker. These are all his decisions. The performances are all really good. The score's not fantastic, but it's it's good enough. So, I mean, maybe you can help me because I, I waffle between like a four and a four and a half. Four and a half feels like a little too generous for some reason. And I think, honestly, it's because of the fact that I think that the 
the suit on Stain is a little bit too out of proportion at the end. I think that the score does fall a little flat, but I don't sit there and say, I could trim this, I could cut that, that should have been rewritten. Everything about it just moves and just works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I I don't know. I think I'm either a four. I mean, if it's a four, it is the most solid four in the world. Right. It's there. It's so I'm probably going to go with a four because that one feels good. That one feels right. Mm hmm. Because four and a half is like, I could almost give it a five, but like, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not an insult to give it a four. That's a right. solid four. That's a great rating. And it's a, it's a really good, enjoyable movie. Where do you end up with it? You know, as you were talking about this, uh, the thing that was really interesting to me um, was your, your desire. Like, what do I give this? And so I, I, Originally, and it this has been at a four for me. Um, I think maybe even since I put it on Letterboxd years and years and years ago. But as we talked about it, I was like, the only detraction here for me is the score. I don't have any other detractions in this movie, and therefore, for me, this deserves a four and a half out of five, because, like you said, is yeah. it a great step forward? And I think the cast ameliorates. Any other issue I have in this movie, they're so charismatic, and there aren't any story issues that I have with the movie. And you know what I really loved? Watching this movie, there are the beauty of having the Ten Rings in the background. The terrorist organization that this 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 main terrorist is working for is the Ten Rings. Those Ten Rings are going to show up again in Iron Man 3. And then, of course, they're going to show up in Shang-Chi in The Legend of the Ten Rings. So they don't know that all that's going to happen, right? They just knew that one of the original... Yeah, yeah, one of the original villains that they had for the movie was going to be the Mandarin. And then they decided not to do that. They wanted to do something much more grounded so they could build something more fantastical. All in all, though, I just like... That's cool. So... And the fact that I've just seen, you know, uh, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, like it was like from start to finish, you know, like the, all this yeah. kind of stuff, they were, they were, they were okay with. So for me, this is going to, I'm going to have to go into Letterboxd and change this. This is a four and a half. You know what? Consider me wishy-washy. You're right. It's a four and a half. It really is. I, I don't know why I didn't want to land on that, but you're, you're absolutely right. It really is the score is the only part where it's like, yeah, that could have been better. I, who am I? Yeah. Like, I, I can't really take away anything else from it. And it's like, and of course, you know, you look down the road and you you watch this movie and you you weren't thinking it at the time, but you watch this and you go, oh, well, of course, Favreau had a hand in, you know, rehabilitating Star Wars, you know, like, yeah, okay. That makes sense at this point. Like, because yeah. you look at this and you're like, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yep. he had the chops the whole time. Mm-hmm. It makes perfect sense 100%. that he teams up with Filoni and makes the Mandalorian. Yeah, okay. Yep. I could see that. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it, you just called out this. I think Favreau shows himself to be a fantastic director and an understander of what it means to bring something to life as a fan and in just reality. Yeah. Um, and to give you that thing to which it is that you want. Like... He's very good at giving fans what they want, but at the same time, 
you know, he, he's he's not just doing that. He's, you know, here again, we talked about in this movie. It, it, it gives us a little bit of things to think about, uh, you know, that is very thematically relevant to the world we were living in then, but also the world we live in now. So, I mean, I got to give the movie that, too, that it continues to have some relevancy in its thematic elements. And that's the hallmark of a great film. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So, yeah. So I, I wind up with four and a half. I was waffling. I, I, but yes. So we both give it four and a half. So what What an auspicious start. What is great. Auspicious start for this journey into the Marvel Universe, right? The it's, Marvel Connected yeah, Universe. Really going to be fun. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, like you said, it, it's such a great start and I, I can't wait to, to dive into uh, some of these films again. I have actually been holding off rewatching any Marvel films so that I could really kind of try and come in as fresh as possible to the films. Um, and so revisiting Iron Man has been a joy. But John, you know, when we're not talking MCU together now, where is it that, you know, people can find you? Well, you can find me online as Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. Find me over on Letterboxd, which Matt mentioned earlier as, as a service that we both like to hang out on, rating movies and such. And you can find me over on the Nerd Party Network, co-hosting House Lights, which is a series where we look at directors and their works through the ages, whether it's by decade, by career or by whatever strange combination we want to go by, and also co-hosting a Star Wars podcast by the name of Aggressive Negotiations with uh, a fine gentleman by the name of Matthew Rushing. And uh, I love doing that with you. It's so much fun. Uh, of course, you could find me all over social media under the name Matt Rushing Zero uh, Two here on the network. Of course, you know you're already in the Six Hundred Two Club feed, so check everything else out on the Six Hundred Two Club feed with Snyder cuts as well as the main show, the Six Hundred Two Club. I'm also doing literary treks in the Orb. Um, literary treks about the books and the comics of Star Trek, and the Orbs about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And yes, I'm also doing one more show here in the network. Um, for the 20th anniversary of Enterprise, we are walking through every single episode of Star Trek Enterprise, Chris Jones and I, on Warp 5. So I hope you will enjoy that as we celebrate 20 years of that Star Trek show. Wow. And over on the Nerd Party Network, I know, doesn't make you feel old? Yeah, 20 <laughs> like, years oh my ago. Gosh. My goodness, I can't believe oh, that. goodness. Jeez. So, uh, well... And then on the Nerd Party Network, as I mentioned, I'm doing Owl Post with Dre Kaufman. We actually finished that show, and it was about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. But thank you so much for joining us. Avengers! Avengers!